And we will begin reading at verse 6. Jeremiah 10, 6. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is due thee. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Euphaz. The work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith, violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you will say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Let's pray before we look into this. Our Father, we pray that you would take us beyond ourselves and what we can think and do in ourselves and that you would glorify yourself. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a chapter, we just read part of it, of course, but it's a chapter on the sin of idolatry. (coughs) And idolatry is something that is worldwide. The human heart is a virtual forge of (coughs) idolatry. And There's hardly any other sin, I think this would be true, there's hardly any other sin more hateful to God than idolatry. Because it it libels, it slanders, it distorts his character. Now, this chapter... When you read it, you think mainly of idols that you would make with your hands and set up somewhere, but we shouldn't think of idolatry as limited to that. Um, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. The thinking of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him is the essence of what idolatry is all about. So you don't have to kneel before some idol up on the wall or something to commit idolatry. Perverted notions about God soon rot true religion uh, 
and we can see that all around the world. And we can see it in America. And we can see it in much of professing Christianity. A.W. Tozer said that so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. Wrong thoughts of God, wrong worship, wrong lifestyle. John, in his letter of, we call First John, ends that letter with a sentence. He says, little children, keep yourselves or guard yourselves from idols. After the whole letter, he ends it with, by saying that, which tells me that this is something we need to be careful about. We must guard ourselves from thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So again, I would say we, the human race, and us sitting here today are prone to idolatry. To lose a sense of the majesty and the glory of God. Again, let me just quote A.W. Tozer here. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. With our loss of the sense of the majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and a consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. The decline of the knowledge of the holy, that's the name of the book that uh, I took these quotes from, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous and inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is, to think of God rightly. So, a rediscovery of the majesty of God. Now, our word majesty comes from the Latin, and it means greatness. We must think great thoughts of God in order to worship God, in order to live for God. He is infinitely above us in greatness and therefore should be adored and worshipped and feared. He is eternal, infinite, almighty, all concepts which we cannot comprehend. We use the words, we have a feel for what something of what they mean, but we, they are beyond us when we say that God is infinite or eternal or even almighty. As our text here said, and I'm particularly zeroing in on the first couple of verses, there is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. 
who would not fear thee, O king of nations. Indeed, it is thy due. It's only right that we should fear, that we should worship, that we should adore, that we should serve God, because he's great. He's the king, the king of nations. He has unlimited dominion over all his creatures and all his creation. Many of our problems come from thinking small thoughts of God. A God that is too much like us. One man wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And I think that's a large part of our problem. Day by day problems. God is personal, but he is not a person of the same sort as we are. In other words, he's not weak, he's not inadequate, he's not ineffective. We are finite and imperfect, he is infinite and perfect. He totally transcends us. He's altogether other than we are because he is infinite and eternal and holy. Now when I say that he transcends us, some of the books on the attributes of God talk about his transcendence, the divine transcendence. What's that mean? That means he's totally over us, totally above. But we shouldn't think in terms of spatial things. We should think in terms of character. He's totally above us in his character, in his makeup, in who he is. When we speak of God as transcendent, we mean that he is exalted far above the created universe so far exalted above the created universe that we can't even imagine how far above he is. We're talking about infinite exaltation above us and all else. He's infinitely exalted above everything that he's made. We must not think of God as the highest in some kind of ascending order of being. You start out with a single cell and then you go up to the fish and the turtle or whatever, the bird, the uh, porpoise. Uh, you get to man, then you get to angels, then you get to God. That would mean that he is great in the sense of quality, he's a little bit, or quantity, he's a little bit greater than we are in quantity, but, but we're talking about something infinitely, qualitatively different than us. He is the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. As Psalm 140 Five, verse 3, Great is the Lord, and highly do be praised, 
and his greatness is unsearchable. We're talking about something we cannot fathom, can't get down to the real bottom of. Unsearchable. God forever stands apart from us in light unapproachable. Now again, let me quote from Tozer here. He says, He is as high above an archangel, archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. An infinite gulf between the greatest archangel and God. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one, they're one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. There is none like thee, O Lord. One way God has determined to remind us of his infinite greatness is by a a special name that he's chosen to reveal to us. You might almost say this is his proper name. And you find it in this verse, in verse 6, and you find it throughout the Bible. There is none like thee, O Lord. And you see that word Lord is in all caps. Whenever you see that, that's referring to the mysterious, unfathomable name of God. It's a special name that he's chosen for us to think of him by. Now that name was proclaimed to Moses in his encounter there at the burning bush. And I want to turn to that because it will be kind of a stepping stone for us to hopefully... Think great thoughts of God instead of small thoughts. Exodus chapter 3. God spoke to Moses from this burning bush that was not consumed. And we won't read the whole account of that. But basically what God was doing was preparing him to go back and speak to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. And in the midst of this preparation, in terms of God speaking to him, we have this part of the conversation beginning with verse 13. 
Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I am. I am that I am. Now, I say this is a mysterious name. This is an unfathomable name. This is something we can't get a hold of, and that's part of God's... uh, Part of his giving that name to us was to show us something of that aspect of his nature, that he is far beyond us, that he transcends us, that he's not like us. That that name that's referred to here was written with four consonants and no vowels. They are the consonants Y, H, W, H. Y, H, W, H. Now, how would you say that? How would you pronounce that? Well, we don't know. Some people have taken it to be Yahweh, supplying some vowels, or Jehovah, but we don't know. The Jewish people considered the name so holy that they wouldn't pronounce it. Even when the scribes would transcribe the scriptures, when they would come to this name, they would use a new pen just to write the name, and then after they wrote the name, they'd burn the pen. God is telling us something here, you see. He was telling Moses something. He was preparing Moses to go back into a very difficult situation. And he's saying to all of us, this is my memorial name to all generations, forever. This name shows us a number of things probably shows us an infinite number of things if we really could see all the aspects of it. But I want to mention just a few. First of all, it shows us that God is self-existent. Self-existent. That he has his being in himself. The root of this word is to be. It has has to do with being. And God is saying he has 
his being in himself. He's telling us that he's eternal. I am. He's, he's not, not past and present. I am. I am. I am. I am that I am. He's unchangeable, immutable. He's always I am. His character is always the same. And he is, because he's unchangeable in his word and his nature, therefore he's totally trustworthy. I am sent me to you. The one who's totally trustworthy has sent me to you. And last of all, he's incomprehensible. The name tells you that because we can't, we can't even say it. He's incomprehensible. We cannot, by searching, find him out. So, when God said, I am who I am, or I am that I am, he's saying, realize there's mystery here. There's depths to which you can't go when you're dealing with me. So there's much more here than what we can understand. But I do want to zero in on this aspect that I think is one of the primary things that God is emphasizing, and that is his self-existence, God's self-existence. What we have here is an unqualified declaration of totally independent being. God is totally independent. Only God can say in any absolute sense, I am. The only reason you can say I am is because you were made in the image of God. But he's the one, he's the ultimate I am. Only God has no origin. What we're saying, only God is self-existent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In the beginning, God, he's the self-existent one. Everything else depends on him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Apart from God himself, everything that exists has been created. The origin of the earth and heaven and all else is found in God, who himself has no origin. When we say that God is self-existent, we acknowledge that there is nothing back of or prior to him. He has the ground of his existence in himself. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's kind of might be nice theological thought or might be good if you were studying philosophy. But uh, we shouldn't think that these... This thought about God related to his self-existence is uh, not important for everyday life. It affects every area of our life because all of life is theological. 
And as we've said before, if we have wrong ideas of God, we're going to be wrong in what we think. We're going to be wrong in what we do. If we have wrong ideas of God, it will produce wrong thinking in other areas and wrong living. And God wants to keep us from that, partly through giving us a revelation uh, of who he is in, in this very name, in this revelation he gave to Moses. Mo Moses needed a right concept of God uh, to go back into the situation that he was going to be facing there by going back to Pharaoh and I think, think of it, one man going up to the most powerful ruler on the earth at the time and saying, let my people go. And then leading half a million or a million people out of Egypt. He needed a right concept of God. Even the idea that the God that he worshipped and that the Jewish people worshipped was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, was it needed some undergirding. It needed more. It needed a deeper revelation of the character of God. God is more than what he is in relationship to his people. Now, this is, just think about this a little bit. God is more than just what he is in relationship to his people. See, that's that's part of the revelation uh, that God had given. Uh, back in verse 6 here, if you're still in chapter 3, uh, he, uh, he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's important, what he is in relationship to his people. But this deeper revelation has to do with what God is in himself. I am who I am doesn't matter if there was no world created. He is the independent one, the one who existed forever before the creation of the world. He existed forever as the great I am before the creation of the world, before he had any relationship to any created thing. The God who is in need of nothing... And all things are always in need of him. The God who reveals himself and is yet infinitely beyond our comprehension. Again, he's the high and holy one that inhabits eternity. Man and everything else that exists came into being by him and for him, and he is himself uncreated. From him and through him and to him are all things. Now these, a lot of these thoughts, again, are from uh, Tozer, but he's just trying to bring out what some of what was being presented to Moses here and is for us all. When we use that word Lord, when it's spelled L-O-R-D with cap, caps, 
we ought to be thinking this is this is we're talking something beyond us here we're th talking something mysterious here we're talking something related to God's self-existence and his incomprehensible nature whatever God is and all that he is he is in himself and he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself basically what he's saying in this name at least partly is I need no help you need me I don't need you I need no counselors I need no defenders you need me for, for wisdom you need me to defend you I do not need you I am who I am God's name as with all the names uh, of God in the Bible this one in particular reveals his character you see and what God is revealing here is that he is far beyond our comprehension what we know of God is actually very limited in comparison to what he is in himself one Puritan Thomas Brooks said there is infinitely more in God than tongues of men and angels can express infinitely more in God so my memorial name for all time forever from generation to generation so that includes us I believe God would be delighted for us to take this revelation of himself as I am who I am and meditate upon it until it produces a proper sense of wonder and awe and worship for the one that we call our Father. He's our Father. He's personal, but he's infinite. When we think of the self-existence of God, we should partly think of the fact that he has life in himself. Let's turn to the New Testament. John chapter 5. This is one of those sayings of Christ that contains so much in it. We read right over it. And there's an a incredible amount of important thought in this simple phrase verse 26 of chapter 5 of John for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life 
in himself. But the phrase, just as the Father has life in himself. No creature has life in itself. Nothing has life in itself but God. The reason you and I have life, or anything has life, is because it's been given to us by the one who has life in himself. He's self-existent. And again, he's the only one who can say, I am, in an absolute sense. The only reason we can say that is because the one who has life in himself has given life to us. And we have been made in the image of God. And that philosopher that said, I think, therefore I am, the only reason he could say that is because God gave him the ability to say I am. God's the only one that can say I am. He's the only self-existent one. He's the only one who has life in himself. Even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. That's true in the physical realm, physical life. That's true in the spiritual realm. If any of us have spiritual life here this morning, it's only because it's been a gift from God. Now this phrase that we've been looking at here, this place where God says to, to Moses, I am who I am. Amazingly, when Christ was here on earth, he took that phrase and used it in relationship to himself. Just as it says here, he's given to the Son to have life in himself. And I want to close by looking at three examples of this. The first would be in John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse uh, 56. Jesus speaking to a group of Jewish people here. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Lived thousands of years before. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. See what he's doing there? He's taking that revelation of God as the self-existent one and applying it to himself. Before Abraham was born, didn't say I was, I was, I am. Incredible. And then John 18, and there's a number of these. We're just going to look at three 
in the New Testament. John 18. This, this is an amazing one. <clears throat> you can miss this one because of the way, uh, at least our translation, has added a word. This is when they came to get Jesus as he was betrayed by Judas and they come to get him in the garden uh, with all the soldiers and the high priests. And uh, We'll pick it up, John 18, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing that all things that were coming upon him, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. So now you got the little word he in there, but you see it's in italics. He didn't say I am he. He said I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. And when, therefore, he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did that happen? Why did they fall to the ground? I think there was a little manifestation of the power of the name that's being represented here when he says, I am. When he said, I am, they, they fell to the ground. I mean, for a split second, there was a little manifestation of the power that's in that name. And they fell to the ground. Drew back and fell to the ground. And then the last one, John chapter 8 again. Verse 23. Again, he's speaking to a crowd of, of uh, Jewish people here. Verse 23, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that, uh, you, that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I, that I am, again, the he is supplied there, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a great teacher, a great example, one of the greatest people that ever lived. You have to believe, understand, trust in the fact that he is God incarnate. The great I am manifested in the flesh here on earth. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Well, let's turn back then to Jeremiah chapter 10.
There is none like thee, O Lord. And there's the there's that name. I am who I am. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name in might. That's what happened when those soldiers fell back, fell to the ground. Great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of, of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. Verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Well, let's pray. Father, my words are inadequate and our thoughts are inadequate. But we do ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Help us to see something of the wonder and the grandeur and the greatness and the majesty that belong to you and are involved when we use this name, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would just open our hearts and our minds to more of who you are, that we might serve you better, worship you rightly, think rightly, act rightly. We're dependent, we are totally dependent upon you. We ask that you would do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.